Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the assassination of Sir Michael O'Dwyer by Udem Singh, two strangers from very different worlds who had never met before the day of his death. To many, his murder seemed almost random, and yet Udem's reason to kill would make him a martyr. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 100 The Martyr and the Massacre Today, I'm standing on Caxton Street in Westminster, SW1. Four streets north of the left luggage kiosk where Patrick Mann dumped the hacked-up bits of Emily Belby Kay three streets west of the mysterious murder house of Lord Lucan, five streets southwest of the infamous Spaghetti House siege, and three streets north of the hammer-wielding butler, Victor Ford Lloyd, coming soon to Murder Mile. Westminster is the heart of the British political system, as within spitting distance, a feat tested by so many protesters, is 10 Downing Street the Foreign Office, the relevant ministries and the Houses of Parliament. Where laws are made, lies are spouted, and the same useless toothless morons are made into ministers, swiftly sacked for being crap, and punished by being promoted. Infamous for its protests, Westminster is often filled with more placards than people, as everybody's voice has a right to be heard. Except recently, when a very astute police constable saw five knuckle-scraping skinheads staggering towards the Black Lives Matter protest. And instead of riling them up by suggesting that they weren't welcome, she hit them where it hurts by saying, Sorry lads, you can't bring booze into Parliament Square. And with that, 
they toddled off to the jolly racist pub, unaware that everything that they love, such as beer, football and curries, were invented by the foreigners. Bloody foreigners. Two streets away from Parliament Square is Caxton Street, a small side street crammed full of new offices, old houses, renovated flats, a single tree and Caxton Hall. A place not of protest, but of debate. Built in 1883, Caxton Hall is a five-storey, Grade two listed former town hall with a history as colourful as the red and pink sandstone it's sculpted from. Having witnessed many musicals, speeches, and the weddings of Peter Sellers, Ringo Starr, Elizabeth Taylor, and Joan Collins, as well as such infamous political movements as the First Pan-African Conference, the Women's Social and Political Union, and the first public meeting of the Homosexual Law Reform Society. And although almost all of these events, except the marriages, ended peacefully, it was also home to a very political murder. As it was here, on Wednesday the 13th of March 1940, where Udem Singh would come face to face with Sir Michael O'Dwyer and would shoot him dead. So what connected the Indian killer with his Irish victim? Well, on the surface, nothing. Michael Francis O'Dwyer was born on the 28th of April, 1864, in Barronstown, a remote, windswept farmstead in County Tipperary in the southwest of Ireland, 4,000 miles from the Punjab in northern India. As the sixth of 14 siblings, to John, an affluent landowner, and Margaret, his wife, as Irish farmers who had struggled in the wake of the Great Famine, which left almost a million people dead, with their country torn between independents and nationalists, the O'Dwyers turned their backs on their homeland to climb up the greasy pole of prosperity, having sided with their brutal British oppressors. From an early age, Michael was raised and educated to be British, not Irish. To be cold, ruthless and ambitious. To never give up and never give in, no matter how unfair, unkind or inhumane his orders or goals. And being an Irish farm boy, his only assured route to success was through the Indian civil service. With India, under the tyrannical boot of the British Empire, the careers and wealth of many infamous leaders and politicians, whose statues still stand tall on our streets today, were forged in India's blood. As seeing its people as uncivilized savages to be subjugated, Michael adopted this attitude of supremacy. In 1884, having passed his Indian civil service exam, he was posted as an ICS officer to Shapur in the Punjab, where later promoted to the euphemistically titled Director of Land Records. He oversaw the resettlement of Indian land to native people and tribes, but mostly British landlords and investors. With a total disrespect 
and disregard for Indian life, culture and sensitivities. He lived as the British in India did, with the invaders in privilege and the natives in poverty, their country ravaged by colonialism. In 1887, assigned to reorganize the separation of the Northwest frontier and the Punjab, after a quarter of a century of rewriting laws, rules and boundaries for Westminster, in May 1913, he became Lieutenant Governor with total control over the Punjabi people, for which he would be knighted. Upon his succession, Viceroy Penshurst warned Sir Michael that the Punjab was highly flammable and if an explosion was to be avoided, it required careful handling, a skill he was not blessed with. In 1914, with Britain losing the bloody conflict with Germany, although countless Indians had died in the fight for independence, now the master had come crawling to its slaves for help. Under the Defence of India Act of 1915, 360,000 Punjabi men were enlisted to die for their captors' king and country, in return for land, money and the promise of a better future. Being short on soldiers, sensing an uprising of Punjabi nationalism and with the country on the brink of unrest, under emergency wartime measures, the Defence of India Act limited the civil and political liberties of the Indian people. A draconian act strongly favoured and enforced by Sir Michael. But by 1918, with the war over and the emergency measures obsolete, as Indian soldiers returned from the battlefield with a sense of loss and every promise broken, seeing a rise in radical thought, the British sought to suppress India's freedom by extending those wartime rules. The Rollet Act was passed by the British government on the 10th of April 1919. And although Sir Michael wouldn't be murdered for another 21 years, the date is significant. As just five weeks after it was signed, his actions would invoke one of the world's bloodiest and most shocking massacres. So who was Udem Singh and why did he kill? Born on the 26th of December 1899 in the impoverished Sangur district of the Punjab, Udem's birth name was Sher Singh. With his mother having died in childbirth, he was raised as the second of two sons to Sardar Tahal Singh Jammu, a widowed watchman of a railway crossing in the village of Upali. Aged three, following the tragic sudden death of his father, and with no family to raise his two sensitive little boys, who had nothing and no one, Sher and his older brother Mukta were sent to the Central Khalsa Orphanage in Amaritsa, where Sher was initiated as a Sikh and was given the name Udem Singh. Of those first two decades of his life, that is all we know. In 1916, he attended Khalsa College. In 1918, he graduated. And in 1919, he left the orphanage. Living under the brutal British boot, 
With the Rowlet Act curbing his rights, Uden was conscripted to fight in the Third Anglo-Afghan War against the Afghan rebels, who ironically would win their independence from the British. He served in Basra, East Africa, and after four years of service, he returned home to India with nothing but broken promises. With killing in cold blood, outlawed in Sikhism, and with murder not part of his curious heart, Uden wanted to see the world, develop his skills, expand his mind, and escape his poverty. So over the next 16 years, he would travel far and wide. But the things he had seen would eat away at his soul. Setting sail to Mexico, under the alias of a Costa Rican seaman called Frank Brazil, as Indians weren't permitted to sail on US vessels, he lived in California, Chicago, Detroit, and New York for several years, only to earn his passage back to India in July 1927 by working as a carpenter on board the SS Jalapa. Seeing his besieged country from afar, whilst in the US, Udem had become deeply influenced by the revolutionary nationalist Bhagat Singh, who sought to overthrow India's colonial oppressors. Upon his return to his birthplace of Amaritsa, Udem was arrested for possessing two unlicensed revolvers and a large stash of the prohibited Gada party paper called Gada Igunji, which in Punjabi means voice of revolt. Admitting in court a desire to murder his British oppressors, he was sentenced to five years in prison. In 1931, he was released. And after that, everything fell apart. Being under constant surveillance, via Kashmir and East Germany, Udem came to England. For six years, as a committed nationalist, he was literally in the belly of the beast. But his life was in chaos. With no one to guide him, he was indiscreet about his anti-British attitude. He used several aliases, he lodged with known Bolsheviks, and he applied for and received travel visas to Holland, Germany, Poland, Austria and Italy, as well as Eastern Europe and Russia during the rise of Hitler's fascist dictatorship. Living in a white Protestant city, Udem wasn't exactly anonymous as being an Asian Sikh with a big beard and a bright turban, who drifted from job to job, bragged about smuggling arms to India and spouted extremist views. By the end of 1936, having embraced a British way of life, he was cohabiting with a white woman in the West End and was making a living as a jobbing carpenter and a film extra. By 1938, he was charged with demanding money with menace. By 1939, being unemployed, he was living off benefits of just 17 shillings a week. And by 1940, with World War II in full force and London ravaged by the Blitz, the revolutionary wind had gone out of his sails and he felt like a failure. And yet, his martyrdom was just around the corner. 
but how? His motivation began more than two decades earlier, in the year that he had left the orphanage, as 1919 was a flashpoint in the collapse of the British Empire and India's struggle for independence. With the country crippled by strikes, riots and mutinies, seeing Amaritsa as a city in revolt, Sir Michael had implemented strict draconian rules to maintain his tyrannical stranglehold on the people and deny them any freedom in their own city. Protests were outlawed, leaders were exiled, and curfews were brutally enforced. To impose his will and to quash any rebellion, the policing of Amaritsa was overseen by acting Brigadier General Reginald Dyer, a cruel, sadistic, cold-blooded bully who ruled with an iron rod and no emotion. On Sunday the 13th of April 1919, General Dyer banned all public meetings of more than four people and imposed an 8pm curfew starting that night. Only this would be a warning which few locals would heed, as Amaritsa was a city of many languages, where few people were literate enough to read the sparsely dispersed leaflets. And more importantly, this was a key day in the Sikh faith. This was the festival of Barsaki, a sacred day where thousands of pilgrim families descend from the hills to the city for prayers, food and the cattle fair. Incensed at these peasants, who had flagrantly ignored his rules on public meetings, at 2pm, General Dyer shut down the cattle fair. But the people didn't disperse. Instead, with nothing to do and nowhere to go, having already prayed and reluctantly heading home, many aimlessly drifted into Jalian Walabar. Jalian Walabar, known as the Bar is a six-acre garden with a 20-foot well, surrounded by 10-foot-high walls and accessed by one entrance and five narrow alleys with lockable steel gates. As during the rainy season, the garden is used for farming. But being flat and arid for the rest of the year, it is also a public meeting space, a Sikh cremation site, and somewhere to peacefully protest and debate. At 4pm, Estimating the crowd at between 6,000 and 20,000 people, General Dyer did nothing to disperse the crowd, as in his mind he had already warned them and they had chosen to ignore it. The evening was warm and peaceful, as although densely packed with a small but peaceful protest over two exiled leaders, the barg was full of thousands of families playing games, eating picnics, and savouring the last few hours of sunlight. Only General Dyer didn't see it that way. This wasn't a picnic. This was a rebellion, an uprising, and a revolt. At 8pm, as decreed, with his curfew in force, and these anarchic peasants deliberately disobeying his direct order, having blocked the main entrance, locked all of the alley gates, and formed a line of 90 Sikh and Gurkha soldiers. General Dyer gave no warning of his bloody intentions, except for his men to make ready, begin, fire! 
It was like shooting fish in a barrel. As even as the terrified people fled, so thick were the crowds that Dyer ordered his men to fire at the densest part, so each bullet would penetrate several bodies deep. Panicked, frightened, and unable to escape, with nothing to hide behind but a bloody pile of mounting corpses, the fittest were shot climbing the lock gates. The elderly and the sick were crushed in the stampede. Mothers died diving into the deep dry well to shield their babies, and with not a single shot fired back, as the people were unarmed. The troops continued the slaughter for ten whole minutes, manually loading every single one of the 1,650 bullets until their ammunition was spent. With the carnage ceased and the bug bathed in blood, Dyer ordered his men to retreat. They didn't offer any aid or even count the dead. Instead, with Dyer's deadly curfew still in force until the morning, and the city too terrified to enact a rescue effort. Many of the wounded were condemned to lie there, dying. 192 were injured, 379 were dead. The eldest was 82, and the youngest was just six weeks old. The Amoritsa massacre traumatised a nation, and having witnessed one of the worst atrocities ever inflicted by the British, many people were scarred for life. One of whom, it is said, was an 18-year-old boy from the Amaritza orphanage who was serving water at the festival. His name was Udem Singh. To cover his tracks, Sir Michael O'Dwyer initiated martial law in the Punjab on the 15th of April, 1919, two days after the massacre, but backdated the paperwork to the 30th of March, giving a legal justification for General Dyer's atrocity. And having reinforced his side of the story to the British High Command, he sent a telegram to General Dyer saying, your actions were good, right, and I approve. Under the protection of Sir Michael, General Dyer was found innocent of any criminal charges. He was removed from duty, denied a promotion, and he retired from the army on a pension provided by the British people, who felt that what he had done was right. He died in 1927, unrepentant for the massacre. Arrogant to the end, Sir Michael O'Dwyer was relieved of his office by Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India, to which he replied, well, that's what comes of having a Jew in Whitehall. He returned to London with his wife and children to live out a comfortable retirement as a public speaker. 21 years on, with Germany as the new enemy, many had forgotten about the massacre but one man had not. And although murder was against his religion, Udem Singh still harboured enough hatred to kill. On Wednesday the 13th of March 1940, at 3pm, 
In the Tudor Room of Caxton Hall, a meeting of the East India Association and the Royal Central Asian Society was held to debate the conflict in Afghanistan. Hosted by Brigadier General Sir Percy Sykes, chaired by Lord Dundas, the second Marquess of Zetland and Secretary of State for India, with lectures by such luminaries as Lord Lamington, second Baron and former Governor of Bombay, Sir Louis Dane, former Undersecretary for the State of Punjab, and Sir Michael O'Dwyer, former Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab. All were titled, all were white, and all were British. Entering via the wooden double doors of the red and pink sandstone of this former town hall, Udem Singh was given a wide berth as he cut through the throng of the white and privileged. As although he wore a dark suit, was clean-shaven, and had swapped his turban for a trilby, to many Westerners' eyes, this brown-skinned man seemed a strange addition to this discussion of Asian affairs. With his ticket in hand to this sold-out event, and ushered into this small but snug wood-panelled room, as all 130 of the rickety wooden chairs were occupied, Udem stood with a small group of latecomers in a thin aisle to the right of the room, a few feet from the speaker's platform. Stood slightly behind, Bertha Herring, a self-described spinster from Raysbury, later said, I saw a dark-coloured man a few yards ahead. I wondered who this man was and how he came to be here. He appeared to be of a very unpleasant appearance. Being dressed in a clean white shirt, shiny black shoes, and a smart woolen suit with bulges in both jacket pockets, Udem shrugged off this racism, as her bigotry simply set the tone for the afternoon. And besides, given what he needed to do, he needed space. At 3pm, the lectures began with a dull Anglo-centric diatribe by Lord Zetland, who exalted the British, vilified the Afghans, and reminded the room we know what's best for them and their kind. And although his crass comments were well received with a polite applause, he wasn't why the people were here, as the next speaker was Sir Michael O'Dwyer. Two decades on, this 75-year-old former governor of the Punjab was thin, grey and frail, but fervently unrepentant for his past. In a 20-minute speech, delivered in his notoriously racy Irish manner, and littered with the kind of unabashed bigotry, lazy stereotypes and hate-filled xenophobia which today would end a career, Sir Michael was cheered and harumphed as he frivolously joked about the Afghan invasion of India and his crushing of the Punjab uprising. As Sir Michael concluded his racist rant to a rapturous applause, a standing ovation, and then took his seat to the right of the stage, although barely inches away from his would-be killer, through it all, Udem had remained stoic and remarkably calm. So calm, that he listened to the rest of the lectures. At 4.30pm exactly, as the meeting was concluded by Lord Lamington and the densely packed room 
echoed to the familiar hubbub of dying applause, appreciative murmurs, the shuffle of papers, and the creak of wooden chairs as the audience slowly filed out and the speakers on stage all congratulated each other on how marvellous they were. Clutching a British issue, Smith & Weston .455 calibre 6 Rand revolver, Udem dashed forward, and from just 18 inches away, he fired six quick shots. Caught off guard by the gun's sharp recoil, his last four shots missed their mark. As one nicked Lord Lamington's right wrist, one grazed Sir Louis Dane's forearm, one caused a superficial abrasion to Lord Zetland's left lower ribs, and one missed the stage entirely. But the first two shots were bang on target. Fired into Sir Michael's back, the second bullet smashed through his twelfth rib, his right kidney, his stomach, and came to rest in the front of his crisp white shirt. The first smashed his tenth rib, rib through his right lung, the right ventricle of his heart, and exploded out of the left of his chest. Unlike those who had been murdered at the Amaritza massacre, his killing was by one man, not ninety. His injuries were caused by two bullets, not an exhaustive wall of shredding lead, and his death would be quick, not a ten-minute terrifying slaughter, followed by a long night of pain, tears and fear. Instead, he staggered, he collapsed, and he died almost instantly with no time to feel pain, to ask why, to apologize, or even to regret his decisions, which sent countless thousands to an early grave. As the room erupted into panic, a stampede of screaming people tumbled over chairs and formed a bottleneck by the only exit. Before Udem could reload or escape, having shouted to her sister to bar the exit, Bertha Herring had blocked the packed aisle, later stating, I did nothing. I merely put my fat body in the way to stop it. And as Mr. Wyndham Riches threw a coat over Udem's head and wrestled him to the floor, although the assassination had descended into the depths of an old-fashioned farce, Udem Singh, the Indian nationalist, had surrendered, as his mission was finally complete. Smiling and composed, Udem was arrested moments later. Under the alias of Ram Mohammed Singh Azad, a name which represented the three major religions of the Punjab and his anti-colonial views, Udem Singh was tried at the Old Bailey on Monday the 3rd of June 1940. And after a two-day trial, being found guilty of murder, Mr Justice Atkinson sentenced him to death. Judged by his colonial masters and asked if he had anything to say, Udem made his protest. As angrily thumping the dock, he shouted about the brutality, the slavery, the indecency and the legalised murder of men, women and children under the so-called flag of democracy and a civilization drenched in blood. And as he was led away into the cells, Cursing, down with British imperialism, down with the dirty British dogs. 
the judge directed the press not to report a single word that Udem had spoken. With his appeal dismissed, on Tuesday the 30th of July 1940, at 9am, 40-year-old Udem Singh was hanged at Pentonville Prison, having befallen the same fate as any common killer, traitor or spy, which to many of the British he was. But to the Indian people, he was hailed a hero. Posthumously, the humble carpenter, an orphan boy from Amaritsa, was honoured by the Indian people, the Punjabi press, and Indian Prime Minister Nehru, who praised his selfless action by stating, he kissed the noose so that we may be free. Udem was awarded the title of Shaheed, which means the great martyr, a district in the Punjab was named in his honour. And just seven years after his death, with the British Empire little more than a crumbling ruin, India had won its independence. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. After the break, I shall yawn for a bit. I shall waffle about things I've done. I'll make a tea. I'll do a quiz, most of which I'll probably ruin. I'll tell you some things which weren't in the episode, and then I shall stop. Whoopie-doo! Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Jennifer Cowles, Carol Gavin, and Jane Louise Braun. I thank you all. With an extra thank you to Anne-Marie Griffin and Derek Hughes for your very kind donations. As well as everyone who listens to Murder Mile, and writes a lovely review on your favourite podcast app. It's true to say, without listeners, Murder Mile is nothing. Murder Mile is researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh, that's my yawn, that's my yawn. Oh, what time is it? God, dear, still early. Oh, stretch. Oh, I don't normally get to stretch during an episode. Oh, right, open some windows. Oh, fresh air. Hello, everyone. How are you all doing? You're good. You're good and happy and well and keeping well and keeping chipper. You've got to keep your pecker up at this point, haven't we? You can't sit there grumbling about things. Things are what they are, so you've just got to get on with life. You've got to do stuff. You've got to keep yourself busy. I'm looking forward to getting to the point where I don't have to watch the news anymore. Let's hope that happens soon. Uh, but yeah, we're all here. Oh, uh, sorry, introduction. This is my extra mile. The extra part of the show, not the episode. The episode is the bit you just mentioned, uh, you just listened to. That was the episode. You can switch off now if you want to. Not essential. This is the waffly bit. I do some waffling. I tell you some things that weren't in the episode. I make a cup of tea and then we switch off. And then I have to spend the next couple of days editing the bit that you've just heard. Whoa, which takes ages. It's Thursday morning now. I think you've just probably received the Amelie Pottle episode. Uh, I'm now recording the next episode. That's the way it goes. Oh, at the moment. Oh, timing. Anyway, uh, it's, it was. It has been pissing down for the last couple of days. It's been all. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make my cup of tea, open some windows, and I'll c- continue doing this bit. It's been pissing down for the last couple of days. It's been uh, really rainy and horrible and. Uh, torrential so this is the first morning where we actually haven't had uh torrential rain what's going on outside i'm in a new part i've moved on again because the two weeks are up uh i'm in a place where i can do lots of nice walks which is good uh there's one coot outside who um he seems to think he rules the roost so where i am there's one coot Hang on, I'll put my tea in there. There we go. Oh, uh, there's one coot who basically thinks he rolls the roost. And then, uh, so I was throwing him some bread the other day. You can, you can give bread to coots. They're okay. They can digest it fine. I was feeding the coot. Uh, and he, uh, and then a duck came over and he was like, ah, get away from my bread. So he started scaring the duck away. And then like 20 other ducks came in. So I was like, oh, we'll sod this. So I started feeding loads of ducks, feeding them all there. Because... Uh, uh, you can do that. You can feed ducks bread. Uh, it has. That's okay. And I was doing that, but I was giving them so much bread out that all the ducks were going, all oh, this is great. But the coot spent all of his time fighting off the ducks. And it was like, and by the time he'd finished, he scared away all the ducks. All the bread had gone. I thought, you're a twat. All you need to do is just focus on your bread. But no, he's like, get away from my bread. What an idiot. <sighs> anyway, uh, so I'm in a new place that I've never been to before. I've been through it, but I've never stayed here. It's okay. It's not too bad. It's quite peaceful. There's no at night time. It's very nice. I don't need earplugs or eye shields on because it's quite dark and it's quiet. Uh, a little bit of a, a whiff from a, uh, 
a uh, water facility. Let's call it a water facility. What we mean is a poo factory. Uh, but apart from that, there's some nice areas, some nice places to go for walks. So I go on nice walks every evening. I try and do my 10,000 steps to make sure I get some exercise in. And there's some nice houses with big gates. So I, I, I have a little peep into people's houses, which is quite nice. I quite like doing that because I'm a nosy bastard. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, I'm going to go and pick up some... Uh, I've ordered some extra mugs because I'm almost, almost out of mugs for the Murder Mile shop. The little e-shop I've got. I'm picking up the new key rings this week. Limited edition. I've only got a run of about a th- about 100 on those. So uh, if you're a $25 and above subscriber, you'll get one of those instantly. Some of those uh, instantly. I'll send you those and some of the new little badges as well. For a handful of the uh, $10 patrons, uh, I'll do a, a bit of a quiz or something so you can... Because uh, there's only a handful of them, so I can only give so many away. But some will be available in the shops as well. <sighs> Looks like my tea's about to go. Uh, right, uh, I haven't got a cake today. No cake. Because... Uh, I, think I, I think I started going back on the cakes in December when I was nice and skinny. Uh, and in the last couple of months, well, let's just say I've been having quite a few cakes and biscuits and, and treats and chocolate and stuff like that, and I've packed on the pounds again. Uh, so I need to get back into shape again. I need to stop being a big old fat bastard. So, oh, there we go. So, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to not have too much cake. I, I realised this the other day, like I went to the shops and I was like, oh, I'll buy some stuff, I'll buy some bread. Even though I'm not meant to be eating bread. And then when I came away, I looked in the basket and I realised I, I bought some cakes and then I bought, bought um, some biscuits and I bought some other cakes as well. And I bought some ice cream and I thought, oh, well, I bought some chocolate as well. And I thought, Jesus Christ. And then I came back and I realised I'd already got loads of cake and chocolate. And I just realised I'm, I'm pigging out. So I'm going back to eating healthily. So I've got some digestives here and I have four a day. But in the in the evening, I have, I have my my nice meal. It's nice. It's a kind of um, uh, lots of raw carrot, all chopped up, garlic, olives. I like all things like pickles and uh, onions and stuff like that. And then there's some mackerel on top. And then I do some uh, boiled salad potatoes and some sprouts. There you go. And there's no. I don't like things with sauce. I think sauce ruins things. So. Uh, there's no sauce on it. There's a little bit of mustard on the corner, proper English mustard, the nice, the nice yellow one that accidentally yesterday I was eating with one of my spuds, and then I, I scraped some stuff off the plate which I thought was, you know, like because I have an egg in there as well, one egg, and I thought it was egg and it wasn't. It was a big old fork full of mustard, and Jesus, it was hot. I really blew my head off. Anyway. <laughs> uh what else we got right uh yeah oh uh for this episode uh i'm gonna do what i always do i'm gonna put some uh some pictures on there there's some uh lots of pictures that the patreon listeners if you if you subscribe to patreon you can do it for as little as three dollars a month but there's loads of photos that i put on there that i don't put anywhere else it's all exclusive to patreon listeners uh explanations on there uh, there'll be a, a location video on there at the moment but obviously because there's no there's no photos and there's also no footage of the Amaritza massacre so what I've done on there I've put uh, a clip from the wonderful film Gandhi if you watch Gandhi there's a uh, there's like a five minute sequence involving the Amaritza massacre 
uh, and that on there. So it, that gives you an idea of what the massacre was like, but it's very well shot, very well done. <sighs> right, before we go into details, let's do the questions. So I'm going to ask you some 10 questions about the episode you've just listened to. Uh, some might not be an episode because I might edit them out, but I don't know yet. Some I will probably balls up when I'm doing the next bit, but hey-ho, that's what happens. Right, question number one. Who was married, which celebrities, which celebrities were married at Caxton Hall? I mentioned four of them. Uh, who were they? I think one of them, one of them I took out was Roger Moore was married there as well. And there was another one. Like, oh, yeah, Barry Gibb was there. But I didn't put them in the list. I took them out of the list. Sometimes lists are too long. Question two. What two jobs did Udem do as a job before the assassination? This was literally just before the assassination. What was his last two jobs? Question three. What was Udem's birth name? I quite enjoy this. I was doing a lot of research online and because there's a lot of difficult names in here, I was watching a lot of Indian videos uh, about the massacre and about Udem and because he's quite revered over there. And it was really useful because I couldn't understand most of it, but I could, un I could understand the words that I needed to pick up. And it really was helpful because it was like, I, I, the way it's spelled U-D-H-A-M, I would have said, like you would probably say Udam, but it's listening to... All of the Sikhs say say the words. It was the Udem, and I was like, oh, okay. So I, I was making my little <laughs> notes everywhere on how they pronounce it because it just makes it a lot easier. I'd rather try and get it as near as possible. Uh, question four: How many shots were fired in the assassination of Sir Michael O'Dwyer? How many shots were fired? I'll try not to balls that one up in the next one. Question five: What is the name of the lady who stopped Udem's escape? Uh, question six, uh, what, what wasn't a word, which prison was Udem executed in? Which London prison was Udem executed in? Question seven, in 1915, Britain initiated which act to get Indian men to help fight for Britain in World War One? It's quite euphemistically titled, that act. Uh, question eight. During his military career, which two places did Udem serve? So he was serving in the British Army, but where did he serve? Uh, question nine. The title of Shahid means what? And question ten. Hopefully an easy one. He heard it at the start. What was Sir Michael's middle name? Hmm. Uh, so, OK, so I'll go through some extra details here, which pro probably weren't in the episode. As always, you know, I try and pack in a lot at the start. But when you get nearer the end, you know, sometimes you don't. It, the episode doesn't need to be that weighty. And normally there's a lot of information that I have at the end that just doesn't suit being in the episode. Uh, so uh, an interesting thing. Um, if you want to know how long the shooting went on for the uh, in the uh, Amaritsa massacre, I, as I mentioned, it was about 10 minutes. So if you re-listen to the episode from the second the shooting starts in the episode to the end of the episode, where I say thank you for listening, good night, that's roughly 10 minutes. So that is the duration of how long the how long the, the just the shooting itself went on for. <clears throat> so that must have been horrific. Um 
reaction from British politics afterwards regarding the Amaritza massacre. Um, General Dyer uh, was initially lauded for his actions in Britain. He became a hero by many people who said that he was... Um, you know, protecting uh, Britain, uh, especially the House of Lords. If you don't know British politics, we've got the House of Commons, House of Lords. House of Commons is where the MPs are. House of Lords is where the Lords are. It's the, kind of the the higher chamber. Back then, it was all um, in you know, hereditary peers. Uh, you know, I'm a sort of Lord Ponsonby hands down his uh, his lordship to uh, you know his son and all that shite. Um, uh, they were widely criticised by the House of Commons. Uh, obviously, there were quite a few uh, investigations into this affair, which we'll go into uh, elsewhere. Uh, I mean, that was really all it was. There was really just a handful of kind of House of Lords were condemned for uh, praising it. And the, obviously, there was a pocket of British society who were like, this is great. Uh, thank God for General Dyer and Sir Michael O'Dwyer. But uh, elsewhere... Uh, everyone else quite rightly said that it was something that had really stunned the nations. Uh, and it was the start of the end of the British Empire, really, because you know, people had just lost, lost faith. It was it was quite clearly seen as barbaric, inhumane, and even worse, as always, the government had tried to hide what they were doing. They were, you know, they were fudging the details, which is and it, and it's impossible to know exactly how many people were murdered and injured there i've used the figures there these are kind of figures that have been used by three different sources three independent sources so i kind of feel that they're a bit near as they should be but uh the the uh, uh the governorship in the punjab uh british government um didn't do an investigation into it immediately afterwards so no one really knows how many people actually died there do you know in, in, in one case the figure they say that the figure is as many as a th as many as a thousand dead and 1500 injured but we don't know so i've gone for the, the kind of the estimate that is kind of nearer to what they reckon is true um uh, even before this had gone out, so it took a, it took a little while because don't forget this is 1919 and in India as well. So the information took a real time to come out. But by that point, um, this information didn't make it back to Britain until December. Uh, and the, the massacre had happened in April, so it wasn't until December that the British press actually picked up on it. But by that point, British government and you know uh, um, people like Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who'd already been kind of let go by that point, had already started to fudge the figures and you know change the shape of it. Uh, there was the Hunter Commission. This is why people knew about it. There was the Hunter Commission, which was uh, ordered by the Secretary of State for India, Edwin Montague, who was obviously mentioned in the story as well. Um, they, it's kind of interesting. They, they, they had a commission on, you would think that they would have a commission just about the Amaritza massacre, but they didn't. They investigated what they described as the, uh, investigate the recent disturbances in Bombay, Delhi and the Punjab about its causes and the measure taken to cope with them. Uh, so the massacre didn't even get its own commission. And so it took until I think it was like the middle of November where they finally got round to discussing the Amaritza massacre. You'd think this would, it, that would be like their, their number one thing. Uh, General Dyer was uh, ordered to appear before the commission, although his military superiors had suggested he had represent. He uh, he be represented by legal counsel at the inquiry. Dyer refused the suggestion and appeared alone. He was initially questioned by Lord Hunter, who headed the inquiry. Dyer stated he had 
uh, come to know about the meaning of the uh, uh, to know about the uh, the meeting of all the people in the Jallianwala bar uh, at twelve forty that day, which was the 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 area where uh, people were congregating. Uh, he stated he had gone to the bark. Uh, with the deliberate intention of opening fire if he found a crowd assembled there. Um, when you read his comments about this, he really is unrepentant about anything. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just reading ahead here. Uh, he said, uh, I, I think it is quite possible that I could have dispersed the crowd without firing, but they would have come back again and laughed. I would, uh, I would have... I would have made what I consider a fool of myself. That was General Dyer. That was his comments on it. Um, uh, further, uh, Dyer further reiterated his belief that the crowd in the bag was one of rebels who were trying to isolate my forces and cut off my other supplies. Therefore, I considered it my duty to open fire on them and to fire well. Uh, he, he never once admits that he's made a mistake or that he's you know complete that he's made a grave error at all. It's just really is. Uh, and and they said that Sir Michael O'Dwyer was of the same view. Uh, but they wrote there was no rebellion which required to be crushed. General Dyer constantly kept making reference to that this was a rebellion, an uprising, a revolt, and everyone was like, no, it wasn't. It was you know there was a small protest there, but it was mostly just women, children, families. Um, you know, just in, enjoying a, a, a peaceful festival. Um, they uh, the Hunter Commission could not impose or or penalise any dis disciplinary. I got burpees, sorry, disciplinary action because Dyer's actions were condoned by various superiors, including Sir Michael O'Dwyer. Um, they decided that Dyer had acted in a callous and brutal way. Um, but military or legal prosecution would not be possible due to political reasons. Uh, however, he was finally found guilty of a mistaken notion of duty and relieved of his command. There you go. Found guilty of a mistaken notion of duty. What utter bollocks. Uh, he had been commended for a CBE as a re result of his service in the Third Afghan War. Uh, this was cancelled one year later. Uh, and that was really, that's all he really got. Um, came back to the UK. Uh, members of the society decided that he was, uh, you know, did the right thing. Uh, they gave him a nice pension and he died a couple of years later. What else have we got? It's very frustrating, this. You can see, you can see it's just a fudging all the way through. Um, what else do we need to know? We're moving into kind of the... Um, speeches the 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 murder itself i think there were pieces i kind of put pretty much all of it in um oh i was about to say something then but then that's going to give away one of the questions which i can't do really annoying or oh, uh i'm just reading about the part where where the uh the the end of the assassination where it descends into farce it's weird to trying to write something like this Ginny, you've got the the uh Amaritza Massacre, which is absolutely devastating, and then you've got the end of the assassination, which is very farcical. It's really hard to kind of blur the two together. Um, what did? What do I have? What do I have? I've got a lot of shite here. Um, 
Oh yeah, no. So uh, I think I skipped skimmed over the arrest, didn't I? So uh, Inspector Robert Stevens of the Met Police was actually in the building at the time, uh, in Caxton Hall at the time of the assassination. Obviously, you can appreciate there's a lot of senior British members government former government there so obviously they would have someone there to protect them uh, and there was also a special constable there obviously yeah uh, this special constable obviously wasn't at the bar drinking guinness sure i'm sure you don't do that police constable arsenal guinness i'm sure you're you're always on duty uh, <laughs> um uh so uh inspector robert stevens and the special constable were there uh and they held on to udem uh until police sergeant john mcwilliam assisted them uh udem repeatedly said i did i did it to protest i would like to set india free uh at 8 50 p.m that day he was cautioned uh i'm going to take you uh Sorry, Inspector Robert Stevens said, I'm going to take you to Cannon Street Police Station where you'll be, be charged with the murder of Sir Michael O'Dwyer. Uh, Udem said, I will tell you how I made a protest. Uh, at 10pm he was formally charged. Udem said, I did not mean to kill. I just did it to protest. Even though he actually fired from uh, uh, 18 inches away. Uh, although in some cases it was uh, 12 12 inches uh, at the scene they found empty uh, an empty cartridge found just near uh, the body of Sir Michael O'Dwyer uh, there's a possibility that Udem was trying to reload but we're not too sure um, on uh, his possessions Udem's possessions on his arrest he had uh, two pounds six shillings and two pence two french francs six russian rubles as mentioned he traveled a lot in the time uh he was there also also i think i briefly mentioned in there that he was uh he got visas to go to various countries in eastern europe and stuff like that he was actually drive wanted to drive his uh motorbike across those various countries and uh do you know he was given the right to do that he wanted to go back to india as well but he didn't make it um he also had uh the smith and western revolver as mentioned um a wooden box containing 25 rounds of 44 ammunition and a red diary from 1940 a metal wristwatch his national uh registration card in the name of azad singh uh <coughs> azad was his father's name uh and he uh, his address at that time was 37 mornington crescent in regent's park um although i've got one piece of data here that says he lived at number eight interesting uh, uh he, the gun that he had so even though he had access to guns in india and he was former british military which meant he could keep his own gun uh, he didn't have his own gun with him when he came to united kingdom but he did have one when he was working on all the building sites here because he kept being told off for bringing his gun to work uh the gun was a smith and wesson 455 six chambered revolver the gun was issued during world war ii um um and they looked at it it wasn't his gun uh he said he bought it off a guy in a pub a couple of days prior they traced the gun the gun was issued to a soldier in the dominiums uh, but they were unable to find out who it belonged to. There's that whole thing in the in the police file about you know tracking down where the gun came from, and it just it just reached a dead end. But it's kind of ironic in the end that the gun that killed Sir Michael Francis O'Dwyer was a World War One issue gun, 
issued by the British government <coughs> to uh, overseas soldiers. Uh, what else we got? Uh, uh, when he when he was arrested, he had eight cartridges found in his pocket, so he was ready to reload. Seventeen cartridges found in the case. Uh, six shots. Well, it says here six shots in the gun, all of which had been fired, but obviously elsewhere it mentions that one was dropped on the floor. Uh, so who, who knows where that came from? Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Yep, as mentioned, we got his his diary there. His, his diary it said three p.m. Caxton Hall SW1 meeting. Uh, the only other words in the diary were action, uh, on, only the way to open the door. And he also wrote, I didn't put it, this in the episode, it says, my last month. So he knew that he was going to get caught and that this was going to be the end of his life. Um, the police described the act at the time as an attempt to turn his villainy into a political affair. Uh, they wrote, this is a clear-cut murder case with all the evidence is very strong. It is a pity. Uh, it is a pity that all this rubbish came from the lips of the prisoner um, to come out of court in the paper. Oh, I've misread that. Uh, oh, ah, autopsy. Autopsy was conducted by Sir Bentley Purchase, who we've mentioned before. Coroner was done over at St Pancras Mortuary on Camley Street, which is the one where um, uh, Glyndor Michael's body was, was you know, turned into a, a, a dead officer. Uh, inquest was opened on the 15th of March 1940. He had two wounds, uh, an upper one which smashed, as mentioned, his 10th rib, uh, went right through his right lung, right heart, emerged at his chest, and the other one went through his 12th rib, through his right kidney, his stomach, and came to rest inside the front of his shirt. Oh, let's read some of Udam's comments. So when he was in court at the Old Bailey, obviously only a two-day trial, uh, he said... Uh, he was innocent. Uh, they proved him guilty very, very quickly. Um, uh, what else was in there? So, as mentioned, Justice Atkinson said, uh, do you want to say anything? And Udem said, I say down with British imperialism. You say India do not have peace. We only have slavery. Generations so-called civilization has brought us everything filthy and denigrating known to the human race. All you have to do is read your own history. If you have any human decency about you, you should die with shame. The brutality and bloodthirsty way in which the so-called intellectuals who call themselves rulers of civilization in this world are bloody bastards. Uh, he was then interrupted by the justice who said, I'm not going to listen to a political speech. If you have anything relevant to say about this case, say it. Udem said, I have to say this. I want a protest. Udin brandished a sheet of papers. Uh, the justice said, is it in English? Uh, it was declared that under Section 6 of the Emergency Powers Act, they could they could direct that Udin's speech not be reported in, in the press. So it wasn't, but someone obviously did, because it's all written down here. The justice said, you are only to say why sentence should not be passed according to the law. Udem shouting said, I do not care about sentence of death. It means nothing at all. I am dying for a purpose. He said while thumping the dock. We are suffering from the British Empire. I am not afraid to die. I am proud to die. To have my... To have to free my native land and hope that when I am gone, I hope that in my place will come thousands of countrymen to drive you dirty dogs out and to free my country. 
I am standing before an English jury. I am in an English court. You people go to India. And when you come back, you are given a prize and put in the House of Commons. Very true. Um, we come to England and we are sentenced to death. Machine guns in the streets of India mow down thousands of poor women and children wherever you, your so-called flag of democracy and Christianity flies. India is only slavery, killing, mutilating and destroying. British imperialism. People do not read about it in the papers. We know what is going on in India. Uh, the justice said, I don't want to hear any more. Udem said, you ask me what I have to say, I am saying it. Because you are you because you people are dirty, you do not want to hear from us what you are doing in India. He exclaimed in Hindustani, down with British imperialism, down with dirty British dogs. As he turned to leave the dock, he spat at his solicitor's table uh, and he left the court. And then it was then that the judge said, right, no one can report what he said. But obviously they did. Uh, he had an appeal on the 15th of July 1940 that was uh, rejected. Uh, his execution, as mentioned, on the 30th of July 1940, executed at Pentonville Prison at 9am. Uh, as always, because he was executed, there was a brief autopsy, which you have to do after each execution. And they said uh, he, a cause of death, death by judicial hanging. Uh, what else was there? I think that was it. Yeah, I think I put everything in. So let's do the questions and then I can have my tea and my, my, my biscuits. Oh. It's quite nice not pigging out on treats because then you look forward to the little treats. Right, questions. Here we go. Question one. Which four celebrities as mentioned were married at Caxton Hall? They were Peter Sellers, Ringo Starr, Elizabeth Taylor and Joan Collins. Uh, I was going to mention earlier on in the episode that all that, you know, I mentioned about all the famous things that happened in Caxton Hall, like the, the, the women's suffrage movement was there and the first Pan-African conference was there and the first meeting of the Homosexual Law Reform Act was there as well. Uh, the other thing, unfortunately, that was um, uh, formed at Caxton Hall was the National Front. Yeah, unfortunately, the National Front was formed there as well, which um, uh, if you're not from the United Kingdom, the National Front claims to be a kind of a vague kind of nationalistic British party. But really, it's just it's just thick racists, really it's just th thickies who haven't bothered to read properly. Uh, if you're in the National Front, sorry about that. I'm not, I'm not sorry about what I said. I'm sorry that you're in the National Front. Right. <laughs> Question two. What two jobs... Nah, do you know what? People... That's why we live in a democracy. People can have their own rights. People can have their own beliefs. That's why we live in a democracy. People... People... People can be right. People can be wrong. There we go. Oh, question two. What two jobs did Udem do as a job just before the assassination? What was he doing just before he was assassinated? Uh, now, I mentioned that he, he was on unemployment benefits for a bit, but he did have a couple of jobs just prior to just prior to the assassination. And that was as a jobbing carpenter and a film extra. That's according to his girlfriend at the time. Her, I, uh, her, her name wasn't mentioned in 
the police firebomb. She was doing a lot of jobbing extra work and she got him jobs on a couple of films as well. Uh, but, but it wasn't stated what films, so we don't know. Uh, question three. What was Udem's birth name? What was his birth name? It was Cher Singh. Question four. How many shots were fired at the assassination? I might have given this away in the uh, the extra bit. I think I did, actually. I think I did. Anyway, it was six. There were six shots in the revolver. Question five. What was the name of the lady who stopped Udem's escape? Her name was Bertha Herring. I'm going to send a little uh, link to this to Mr. Richard Herring. Uh, after this and see if he see if uh, it's connected to him in any way because I, I don't know many people called herring but there we go uh question six uh which british prison uh was udem executed in that was pentonville we've mentioned pentonville many times before uh question seven in 1915 britain initiated which act to get indian men to fight for britain in world war one it was euphemistically titled the Defence of India Act. Look at that. Classic British understatement. You want people to fight for you, so you call it the Defence of India Act. Classic. Question eight. During his military career, which two places did Udem serve? Uh... Well, the first one was because he was fighting in the Anglo-Afghan War. So he was serving in Afghanistan. So uh, for a year and a half, he was serving in Basra. Uh, and then for just over two years, he was serving in East Africa. Doesn't say what part of East Africa, though. Uh, question nine. Uh, the title of Shahid means what? This should be an easy one to guess because it's in the title. Uh, the title is, it means the Great Martyr. And question 10, what was Sir Michael's middle name? Mentioned at the very start of the episode. Oh, dear. Uh, his uh, his middle name was Francis. Francis. Good. That's that. That's everything. I'm going to have tea. I'm going to have some biscuits. I'm going to edit this. God. This could be a difficult one. I think. I hope. I hope it's not. Uh, we'll see. Anyway, have yourself some fun. Stay safe. Stay positive. Don't think about what you can't do at the moment. Don't think about how bad things are at the moment. Think about the future. Think about what it is you want to do. Think about this as kind of like a, a reset button on your life. Do you know, if there's things about your life that you didn't enjoy, n now this has given you a chance to go, do you know what? I didn't enjoy that job. So do you know what? If if you do get made redundant from your job or you lose your job or, do you know, hours are being cut or whatever, think to yourself, do you know what? Maybe I didn't like the job anyway. Maybe it's a good excuse to move on or, do you know, do, change things with your life. You know, we can't all do what we want to do at the moment. So just be happy. Have some fun. Don't get too stressed about it. Don't get depressed about stuff. Just live life because, do you know what? You know, you don't know what's around the corner, and we didn't last year, did we? We didn't. Everything was going all, everything was going so well, and then all this happens. So, do you know what? Next year could be awful as well. But 
nothing you can do about it really is there so just enjoy yourselves have some fun be good be healthy go out have some nice walks socially distance with some friends don't be dickheads like what like we've had in this country oh i know every country has had it i'm sure you saw it on the news the other day that we had you know quite a few pubs have re-shut down because people turned up and they were ill and you know contact tracing is not going to work and then if you looked lots of dickheads went to soho and decided to have a, a big old party in the street and if you look at the pictures not one of them is wearing a, a mask none of them wearing gloves none of them seem to be none of them are socially distancing in fact they're all over each other and it's just like how can you contact trace that how can you contact trace 100 200 people all from different pubs in a street mingling together it's not going to work is it not going to work but there we go anyway tea time biscuit time i'm gonna piss off and edit this right have yourself a good week uh best wishes be good bye bye how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.